Hi, and welcome to a podcast from Hope Springs Church Coventry. For more, please find us on Facebook at Hope Springs Church or on Twitter, we're at Hope Springs Cobb. Thank you and enjoy. That's it, right. So I'm going to pray and then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, thank you. Um, that you reveal yourself to us. It's not that we have fathomed you out. It's not that we um, have perceived you correctly. It's that you have indwelt within us by your spirit and your spirit reveals Jesus Christ to us and in us and through us to this world and that Jesus is the one who saves and that we are the ones who are his body that reach out with that message of salvation and deliverance by your spirit, empowered by your spirit. So Holy Spirit, I ask that you come and just reveal Jesus to us afresh this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Right, who's feeling strong this morning? Also, I am going to choose a volunteer. (laughs) Luke's looking at me, bad idea to make eye contact. What have I got to do? Just, just, Just put this on, and then I'll tell you what you've got to do. Right, so while I'm speaking, I need you to do 200 press-ups with this one. There's two uh, 20-pound weight plates in that bag. So, um, I haven't had time to prepare a short preach. So I might go on for a while, but while I'm doing that, I need you to knock out about 200 press-ups. And then when you've done 200 press-ups, 300 weighted squats. Yeah, okay, yeah. And then 100 pull-ups. I'll I'll just do it in the hallway. That's that's cool. But it is heavy, right? It is heavy. Cool. Yeah, there's two uh, 20-pound weight plates in there. Anybody want to feel how heavy it is? No? You're interested, aren't you, Jeremy? I can see it in your eyes. Okay, before I come on to that anyway, uh, I want to talk about... um, the transforming power of seeing correctly or perceiving correctly or recognising things correctly. Um, and I want to revisit a statement that I made a few weeks ago uh, in, in the Bible, in Genesis 4. Cain says to God, am I my brother's keeper? And then there's a full stop and God doesn't answer. But I really reckon that the rest of the Bible is just giving the answer to that question as an emphatic yes. So I'm going to talk about perception, and I'm going to talk about am I my brother's keeper? Um, so obviously, I need a rucksack with 20 pounds in. <laughs> See, the thing is, when the new things come, the old things have to make way. To enable a transition into a new way of seeing, or perceiving, or recognising reality, the old ways of seeing need to make way. And that's the transition we go through. So in Isaiah it says, The former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. And entering into this newness will look a lot like the empowering love of God. The empowerment to love God, the empowerment to love neighbour, the empowerment to say to the question, Am I my brother's keeper? You are empowered by the Spirit of Jesus Christ to say yes. Right, so Paul says this, says it way better than I do in 2 Corinthians 5. So if anyone is in Christ, new creation, Mm -hmm. everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. All of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. And he has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. That is Christ. In Christ, 
God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. So we are ambassadors for Christ, since God is making his appeal through us. We entreat you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So there's an old thing passing away, and a new thing is coming, and that new thing looks like us reaching out with that message of reconciliation. The old has passed, the new way of seeing things has come, and that is us in Christ. And we have been reconciled, so we reach out with that reconciliation. Okay, so when we see fresh, it looks a lot like loving God and loving neighbour. <clears throat> so I was going to have like a nice, uh, encouraging message where we'd all feel really buoyant and, uh, and lovely. Um, but unfortunately, I can't stay away from sort of political overtones and social welfare overtones. So I was reading this week and I had a massive rant about it on Facebook, of course, um, because that's the most useful and productive way of of dealing with things. Um, So China has been separating children from their families in the west of the country. There's a... um, In the west of the country, they have kind of tribal peoples, uh, the Uyghurs, and they're traditionally Muslim by extraction. And so the Chinese have been separating the children from their families and re-educating them into the correct ways of thinking. And then obviously you have America in the news with, with, with how they're separating children crossing the border from their families and they're keeping them in awful conditions and they haven't got the infrastructure to be able to put the families back together again. They take the mother and father or just the mother or just the father and drag them off somewhere else but they've not recorded who's related to who. So there's no way these children who have been through a a terrific ordeal and then been separated, they've been beaten, they've been locked in cages, not air-conditioned, and they've been left there. There's no way that they can find their parents unless there is a miracle. Thousands upon thousands of miracles need to happen for these children to ever have a hope. Okay? And then in Australia, um, the the islands of Manus and Nauru are being used as... um, places to keep refugees and the conditions there are so bad that people are protesting and trying to draw attention, the, the world's attention to these places to campaign against the Australian government to release these people. It's so bad that people are literally emoliating themselves. They're setting themselves on fire in the hope that they will get on the media to raise awareness of this. China, one of the major economic powers in the world, America, Another major economic power in the world. Australia. One of these developed, hyper-developed countries. And this is what is happening in this world. And so, when I think of the Bible, and I I truly believe that when we look at that question, when Cain asked that question, am I my brother's keeper? The answer that Jesus gives us is yes. So when I see these situations in the world, my heart cries out. And I get outraged. And as a Christian, I firmly believe that the pulpit our preaching should be laced with that outrage. We cannot turn around and say these things are okay or these things do not matter as long as I learn how to pray properly, as long as I learn how to um, read the Bible properly, those things don't matter. I think if we learn to love God, that we cannot help but learn to love our neighbour. And loving our neighbour is sometimes doing nice deeds and kind things for the people right next to us. In fact, 99% 99% of the time it looks like that, but it also looks like a sense of outrage. A sense that I cannot say that that is okay. 
I cannot turn a blind eye to it because it is not okay. Loving God and loving neighbour looks like saying that is wrong. And so, I'm sorry. <laughs> it was going to be the 99% of thing where it's like, this is lovely, but like God, I go after the one. We are our brother's keeper and we should never cease to be outraged about that sort of stuff. We should never cease to call it out for the evil that it is and it is appropriate for us as Christians to decry that as wickedness, as evil. We may not be able to impact the Australian government's decision about what they're doing to immigrants on Manus and Uru. We may not be able to influence American border policy about what they do with children, but we can ensure that our hearts do not grow cold. God is giving us a new heart. He is placing a heart of flesh inside of us, not a heart of stone, and it's for us to steward that to steward the empowerment of the Spirit, the love of the Spirit that burns brightly as a flame. So we should never let our ears grow deaf to the cry of the downtrodden. In their cry is the voice of our crucified, resurrected and ascended Saviour, who descended to the very lowest point to raise up the lowly. Hearing the cry is a jarring noise that helps us perceive reality correctly. Because we start to see what's important, what is true, what needs to happen in this world. This is where the world is at. And this is the world that Jesus came to save. I could have chosen to speak today when I'm talking about new perception and old perception passing away. I could have chosen to speak pretty much from any page of the Bible. You know, we could have looked at Genesis 28, where Jacob lies down and has his dream. And then he wakes up and says, behold, God was actually in this place all along, only I did not perceive it. Could have spoken about the disciples on the Emmaus Road. Their Messiah was dead. Their hopes were dead with him. Instead, this stranger, who they don't recognise, starts to open their eyes until recognition dawns when he breaks the bread. And they suddenly twig who it is. And they can never be the hopeless disciples on the road to Emmaus anymore. They can be the saints that start off a movement that changes the world. I could have spoken about Saul of Tarsus when Jesus knocks him flat with a blinding light. And even though he goes blind for a few days, it's actually a new way of seeing that's dawning within him. He, can, he thought he was about the work of God. I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I was zealous for God, Paul says. He thought that he was doing the right thing because of the way he saw the world, because of the way he recognised reality, he was doing the right thing. And then Jesus burst in on the scene and taught him to see correctly. And that old way passed. And he wrote us those words in 2 Corinthians. The old has passed. In Christ, I'm a new creation. And I have a reconciliation to be preaching, not a destruction. Yeah. could have spoke about the Exodus narrative and the giving of the Torah. I say Torah deliberately and not law, because law, when we think of it like that, has all sorts of bad theology hanging off it. The giving of the Torah, the direction to teach the children of Israel to be the children of God and not the children of Pharaoh. They needed what God gave them in Exodus and Deuteronomy and Leviticus and Numbers because otherwise they'd think exactly like Pharaoh. And we see that, that Pharaoh mindset come back when Solomon becomes king. God says, do not multiply chariots or horses. And we think, that's really weird. That's just legalism. Nice. That's just legalism. But why? What happens when you multiply chariots and horses? You become somebody who deals in war. You become somebody who deals in arms. And then you become somebody that is not after the heart of God. So I could have talked about that, but I won't. (laughs) What I do want to talk about is a guy called Judah. 
the fourth son of Jacob. Because everybody knows about Judah, the fourth son of Jacob. We all know his story, right? Read about Judah recently? Heard a good sermon about Judah recently. Not the nation of Judah, not the tribe of Judah, not the lion of the tribe of Judah. But the guy, Judah, fourth son of Jacob. No, so that's the obvious place for me to start. But before I get there, I want to talk about the mirth. Anybody heard about the mirth? That's why I've got this. It's important to understand that oftentimes this transition into seeing correctly to like a proper recognition of the way things are is a confrontation. It's a confrontation that hits us hard sometimes. Sometimes it looks like failure. Sometimes we come up against something that convinces us that our previous way of recognising things is wrong. So for Saul, it took a blinding light and a voice from heaven to knock him on his butt. For Peter, it took God. All three members of the Trinity, Jesus, Holy Spirit and the Father, all told him to shush at various points. Peter, listen to me now. You got it all wrong, mate. They had to lower the blanket. You remember the vision he had? They lowered the blanket with all the animals. Yeah, but God, that, that's not right, is it? That's clearly not right, mate. Shush, Peter, listen. Yeah, but still, the blanket thing, no. Peter, shh. Seriously, bugs? No, no. Blanket? No. Peter, you're going to get this. You will get this. I promise you, Peter, please get it. Sometimes it looks like hitting a brick wall. We have to come up against the failure of our old way of seeing. Because when the new comes, the old has to go. So... I attempted the mirth. What is the mirth, I hear you say? Well, it's a, a, a fitness challenge. And it was named after a, a American soldier in Afghanistan and he, who was a fitness uh, fanatic. And so he, he died in Afghanistan. And to, on Memorial Day, what, what uh, fitness freaks enjoy doing is doing this mirth challenge, whereby you, you, you run a mile... You do 100 pull-ups, you do 200 press-ups, and you do 300 squats, and then you run a mile. Except for, because this guy was in the army, you do it with £20 on you. <laughs> so, of course, on, on Thursday morning, it was the 4th of July, it's vaguely American, um, I decided that I would attempt this exercise challenge. So I took Emma to school and, and dropped her off, and um, I ran to the park. Uh, and then went to the, the, the kids' playing area where there was a bar that I could use and, and scared a small family of children. Um, uh, so my idea was, this would be a great challenge. This would be a great idea. And let's just be clear that um, it was a test. But it wasn't win or lose. I wasn't competing against anybody. Um, the only thing that I came up against was my perception of my own capabilities. And so I uh, ran the mile very slowly. I, I, I started to do some pull I broke it down into chunks of like 10. So I did 10 pull-ups and then I did 20 press-ups and I did 30 squats. And I was a bit gassed. And then I did another round. And then I did another round that was kind of feeble. And then I did another round which was full of, full of cheating reps. And then... I looked at my watch and decided I should probably try and get home because this might take me longer than I anticipated because I've got sort of 40 minutes after I drop Emma off to get home for work. And I thought, yeah, I'll knock this out in half an hour, right? I can run two miles. I can do all that stuff. So 
I came up against my faulty perception about my own capability. And oftentimes the way we see things is full of hubris. It's full of our own arrogance that we think we've got it right. Because we see this way and we think, of course, that's the way to see things. Because if we didn't think that was the way to see things, we'd try and see things differently. But we've become entrenched. And so oftentimes it does look like quite a shock. So I thought, I'm fairly fit. I can run that distance. I can do those moves. 20 pounds doesn't seem that heavy without wearing it. That bag doesn't look heavy, does it? (laughs) But when you put it on, it is. And so, and let me just get this straight. So I came up against the edge of my capability and I failed but failure, we, we have these negative connotations of failure because we think it's losing. I wasn't losing against anybody, just myself. Failure is a chance for me to improve myself. I sound like a self-help guru now, don't I? And I want to make a caveat about this. But, but what it does, I, didn't, I don't think, oh, I've failed. I'm so rubbish. There's no navel-gazing. There's no negativity that I've taken away from that. There is no uh, dent to my personality or my overwhelming arrogance or hubris. None of that's been damaged at all. All I do know is, is that perhaps I should probably have breakfast before I do this. Perhaps I shouldn't walk with that on my back to take my daughter to school. Perhaps I shouldn't choose such a hot day. Perhaps I should take my inhaler with me. Perhaps I should maybe work up to it and not do the whole thing. So there's a rethinking, there's a re-perception going on. There's a, there's a transition from my old way of thinking, yeah, I can do this, to, yeah, maybe I need to train and work at this. So my perception is slightly shifted. Now, unlike all those stories in the Bible that I've talked about where it kind of happens like that and it's done, they are on a different track. Oftentimes for us, it's gradual perception changes. We come up against little things that make us think. So sometimes it'll be a new story on the BBC which will make me rethink. Maybe I should be more compassionate. Maybe I should try and culture that. So one caveat I want to make here is that this, the Murph, is merely an illustration. This is not an analogy of how God actually works, okay? Because God is not a self-help guru type of God. He doesn't say, you've got this, you can do this. Just be a better version of yourself and you can do this. That is not the God that does that. God is not a God of mechanisms, to change yourself he comes to us often in our weakest and lowest state he is there with us it's not by my own striving unlike the mirth where I will strive I will seek to do more squats I will seek to do more press ups I will seek to do more pull ups and run further adding weight as I go that is self change that is self help that is nothing to do with how God works God does not say to us, you must ascend, you must get better. That is not what God is saying. No, he comes to us. He indwells in us. He empowers us. He is the one that takes our heart of stone in Ezekiel and turns it to a heart of flesh. He is the one that changes us. God is about changing hearts. And in the Hebrew Bible, the heart is not the seat of the emotions. It's the seat of your thinking. It's how you perceive reality. God changes how you think. He reorientates my way of thinking, my way of being, and my way of interpreting the world around me. It is not by strength nor by might, but by his spirit, his indwelling spirit. It will look like humility, bless you, and not hubris. It will look like repentance, a changing of our minds, a 180 in the way we think. Not bullish stubbornness. I am going to stick to this. Because bullish stubbornness will look like me doing this again tomorrow, and the day after, and the day after, and the day after, thinking that I'm going to get better. 
not learning to say, well, I need to train a bit before I get to that level. It will look like self-sacrifice, not self-promotion. It's not because we are mighty or that we have attained to perfect love. It's because he came to us and loved us first. He rescued us. He reconciled us that we can extend that message of reconciliation. Jesus laid down his life and we've been empowered with that same spirit. So, on to Judah. Right, so, this, this, like reading the Bible afresh has just been amazing for me. You'll notice because I've been banging on about the Old Testament, sort of Genesis narratives for quite a while every time I get to preach. So, with the guidance of this guy, Robert Alter, uh, he's a professor of Hebrew and of comparative literature. It's a shame Beth's not in at the moment because I think reading literally... Uh, really helps us uh, see some things in the text that we don't always see. Because our problem is, is when we read the Bible, we say, this is inspired, which is fine. But we treat it as if it's different. And therefore, we don't do our due diligence. We don't do things that we'd normally do with books. We don't see patterns. We don't see the way language is used. We don't see the artful way that the writers have written a story. Because we say it's inspired, but we don't treat it as if it's inspired. What we should be looking at is like, this is better than Shakespeare. That the art and the use of language and the use of repetition and the use of imagery and the use of characters is better in this than it is in Shakespeare because it's inspired. So rather than reading it flat and saying, oh, it's the word of God, so I have to look in here for something that's going to tell me how I must live or how I can tell somebody they're wrong, we look at it and say, what is this telling me about God? How is this revealing to me God? And I tell you, when, when you start reading from that perspective, looking for the repetition of words or phrases... Or like characters, types, typological characters that go on to echo through the scriptures. Just blows my mind. So I'm going to talk about the story of Judah. So the story of Judah is interweaved with the story of Joseph. Now we all know Joseph's story because it's a Bible school favourite. But what we don't read, because we don't read literally, is we don't see that Judah is a foil for Joseph. He's like the shadow of Joseph. All we do is we break it down into these story chunks. Joseph did this, and then there was, you know, they tried to throw him in a well, and then there was Potiphar's wife, and then there was the dreams, and then there was this ascension, and then his brother come back cowering. And there's this really weird chapter about Judah and his daughter-in-law. Let's just skip past that one. Let's carry on with Joseph because that's a fun story. But but Judah is like this 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 shadow story to Joseph, and it is just wonderful. So I'm going to kind of just skip through this story and just talk about some of the, the, the artful ways that the inspired ways that the Bible is written. So the story of Jacob's sons, his 12 sons, by four different women, occupies a big chunk of Genesis. But it also has massive repercussions throughout the rest of the Bible. Jesus even talks about Yahweh being the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob straight from Genesis they talk about the tribes of Judah the number 12 is really significant throughout the New Testament even so we've sanitised this we've made it fit for public consumption but we're just not getting the depth and complexity to what's going on so I just want to um, really go through this so I want us to look at this theme of recognition so if you were to read say like Genesis or even 1 and 2 Samuel this idea of seeing correctly is laced throughout it. There's this massive theme about how to see. So you see just the literal language of seeing, or perceiving, or understanding, or examining. You'll see all of this language littered through. And so what I would suggest is that 
from when Adam and Eve had their eyes opened, you know, it talks about this new way of seeing. God is forever trying to correct that way of seeing. Adam and Eve had their eyes open to good and evil. And God's trying to correct it and say, you just need to be looking for the good, fellas. You just need to be going this way. So God is continuously trying to write their way of recognising the reality. Problem is, is our, our English translations don't do as much help because translators generally work in kind of a stuffy theological way where they want to convey the concepts of Scripture because for us, this is a book of concepts that we have to get our heads around. It's not a book of relationship with the, the Father. And so when translators translate, they either translate word for word and try and bring it into ways that we can understand it in our, in our kind of modern English. Or they translate it a bit more loosely, like the message or the NLT, whereby they try and translate, you know, this is kind of like what the, the author's trying to say. And, and to be honest, like translating anything is really, really difficult. So I'm not knocking it at all. But what we miss, because they think, they don't think literally, they don't think it's like a piece of literature. So they wouldn't say like with Shakespeare, you have all these different character plays and there's certain words attached to certain characters or there's certain imagery that goes with them. They wouldn't seek to translate it in a literate way. They'd translate it in a literal way and you lose that art. You lose the beauty of the text. So, for example, the phrase to go down. You'll see this a lot, in, in, especially in the stories of Jacob, because um, one of them will go down to Egypt one of them will go down to somewhere else. But the word, th- that phrase is always about death. So it might not be a literal death, because they use the phrase to go down to Sheol. You know, we see that littered through the Psalms. Jacob uses it of himself. And so there's these ideas that rumble through the text, whereby, okay, so Joseph may have gone down to Egypt, but it's a figurative death. He's dead to everybody. There's a whole death metaphor playing in the background of that. So that's one example. But I want to talk about recognition. It's really interesting because of all the 12 sons of Jacob, other than Joseph, Judah is the only one that gets like much dedicated text. And this should already be ringing alarm bells in us because the Bible isn't arbitrary in what it includes. So we should say, why is this here? What is God trying to say? through this inclusion because this seems really odd and left field why is that there the only other guy that gets put in is a guy, is Reuben who's the firstborn okay but he acts as a foil to Judah so this wonderful interplay of characters going on so the Judah story in particular so this isn't the Joseph story but it runs parallel the Judah story particularly revolves around this Hebrew root word nakah so say nakah so it's like you're going to spit you're trying to clear your throat and and it means kind of to recognise or various cognates of that word so it could be to examine or to look or to see or to perceive or to understand but means to recognise and there are these three pairs of repetitions of this this root word Okay. so the fact that it gets repeated but it only comes in pairs tells you that there's something artful about this narrative going on. So a, a Hebrew reader would be like, why is, that, why is that in pairs? Why is that a sentence repeated again? But then, like, three chapters on, it's repeated again. And then three chapters on, it's repeated again. What, why is that going on? What's going on there? By the way, I can't read Hebrew. I just have to spend a lot of time with my Strong's Concordance and, like, looking at the Hebrew roots. <clears throat> So, we know Joseph's story well enough, right? We, we all know his story. Brothers don't like him. He's got a coat. 
he has these dreams, he gets thrown in a well, he gets sold to slavers, he goes to Egypt, some woman fancies him, he runs away, he winds up in prison, he has some dreams, he gets to be second in command of overall of Egypt, he saves his brother's family with, with the, the food and everything. We've got it right. So we're going to go to Judah instead. So um, we'll start in Genesis 37. <clears throat> And then we're going to go quite... Actually, I'm not going to use that at all. That was the Hebrew translation, so it kind of brought out the language more, but you'll just have to take my word for it. So we're going quite towards the end. So another theme in this, this is another thing that alerts you. In verse 25, it talks about the, the, the slave traders that kind of buy Joseph. And it says that they were carrying spices, balm and myrrh on their way, carrying them down to Egypt. So they've got these spices... And look for those spices later on in the story. I'm not going to tell you where it is, but go find it. So you know that there's a, there's a narrative arc coming to its completion when you see those spices again. Really random stuff in the text. But where are they going? They're going down to Egypt. So there's something about death or dying or the old passing away. Okay? I'm not just inventing this. This is really in the Hebrew Bible. And then verse 26. So Judah said to his brothers, What profit is there if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come and let him sell. Let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. So Judah is the voice of peace for the brothers now. He's guiding where the brothers are going. And let our hand not be upon him, for he is our brother and of our flesh. And his brothers listened. So some of the brothers are a little bit impetuous. Let's kill him. Let's just kill him and be done with him. And Judah's a bit more, bit more conniving, right? A bit like his father Jacob. A bit smart. A bit devious. Why don't we sell him? We'll make some money out of him as well. He'll be dead as far as our father's concerned, but we'll make something out of it. So he's a bit devious. He's a deceiver, like Jacob is a deceiver, right? <coughs> and his brothers listen. So skipping on to verse 32. So they've pretended that Joseph's dead. <coughs> and they're trying to convince Jacob now. So verse 32. They sent the tunic of many colours, and they brought it to their father and said... And we can kind of take a little bit of license and say that Judah's the spokesperson. He's the one that's guiding this, this initiative. We have found this. Do you know? And that where it says, do you know? That's nakar. Do you recognise? So say with me, nakar. Nakar. Well done. Do you know whether this is your son's tunic or not? And, Ju- and Jacob recognised nakar and said, so there's a pair. Do you recognise? I recognise. It is my son's tunic. Wild beast has devoured him. Without doubt, Joseph is torn to pieces. So Jacob's got a certain level of perception going on, and it's completely wrong. We, the reader, know this, but Jacob does not. Then Jacob tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his waist and mourned for his son many days. And all his sons and daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. Take a note of that. He refused to be comforted. And he said, I shall go down to the grave. There's that repetition of a phrase, going down, and it's associated with death. Go down to the grave to my son in mourning. Thus his father wept for him. So notice that in his grief, Jacob refuses to be consoled. Then we come on to this curious chapter. Okay, This is the weirdest chapter. This is kind of embarrassing, so they might cover their ears. <laughs> so this is about Judah. Why here? Regular storytelling would suggest we have to follow the story of Joseph. He's the key character. So why do they interject chapter 38? 
Now, biblical scholars would say, oh, somebody's edited that and just thrown that in there. Whereas somebody like Robert Alter, who reads it for literature, will say, no, this is an important plot development. We need to know about Judah because he becomes important. And it came to pass at that time, Judah departed. And that word departed is he went down. So the narrative is looping Judah into the same narrative space as Joseph. Judah went down from his brothers. He went away from his brothers. He died to his brothers. So now he's on his own. He's not influenced by their way of seeing things anymore. He's gone away. So he instigated this deception, and now he's away. So he's a prime candidate for something happening now. And so there's all this awkward stuff goes on. So he's got, um, he's got two sons, and one of them has a wife, Tamar, and his eldest son dies and leaves the wife. Now, in Jewish culture, what should happen is, is that Judah should marry his youngest son to Tamar. He should look after Tamar. She is vulnerable. Okay? And his role as the patriarch of that family unit is to look after the vulnerable ones. Okay? His second son doesn't want to marry her. So he has this awkward moment of supposedly sleeping with her to father children. But he doesn't. And God kills him, apparently. And so Tamar is vulnerable now. Two sons have tried and passed. So Judah is supposed to let her be with his third son. But he doesn't. He doesn't do what he's supposed to do to look after the vulnerable one in the family. Okay, so he's allowed the 11th son of Jacob to be sold into slavery. As the fourth brother, he should be looking out for his younger siblings, but he does not. He's supposed to get his daughter-in-law to marry his third son. As the patriarch of the family, that's his obligation to protect the vulnerable, but he does not. After his family have died, essentially, his wife, two of his sons have died. It says this in verse 12. Judah was comforted. Jacob couldn't be consoled. Judah could. After more tragedy, Jacob lost one son, the 11th son. Judah lost his wife and two children, but he somehow got over it pretty quick. This is all painting you a character portrait of what Judah's like. Mm. He's a piece of work. He deceived his father. He profited off his brother's demise. He refused to look after his family. And he can get over it with ease. Okay? There's all sorts of stuff about temporal prostitutes and all that good stuff. Just preaching the Bible. <coughs> and so notice this in verse 15. So he's talking about Tamar. So now she becomes the deceiver. She covers herself up and looks like a temple prostitute. So look at this, this, this brilliant language about seeing and perceiving. Verse 15, when Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot because she had covered her face. Judah's ability to perceive is wrong. He is now being deceived. The deceiver is being deceived. So skip along to verse 25. So he's, somebody's come to him and said, look, your daughter-in-law Tamar... She's been playing the harlot. She's been playing away. You need to do something about that, Judah. You're responsible for her. She's bringing dishonor on your family's name. And Judah's like, yeah, let's, come on, let's do this. Let's burn her. Let's kill her. You know, whenever there's a problem, let's just kill something. So, verse 25. When she was brought out, she, said to, she sent to her father-in-law, by the man whom these things belong, I am with child. That's got to be an awkward moment, right? And she said, 
please nacha, please determine, please recognize who these are. The signet, the cord, and the staff. And then Judah says, so Judah nachad them. Judah recognized them. There's this repeated nachah twice in two verses. So Judah recognized them and said, she has been more righteous than I. And because I did not give her to Shelah, my son, and he never knew her again. So that word, that, that phrase, he never knew her again, kind of suggests this change in heart. So the deceiver has now been caught out. The deceiver has now been deceived. The one who deceived his father has now recognized that his old way of seeing is faulty. Tamar has brought him up short. Okay, just stunning. So now the text suggests that he's a changed man. And then let's look on, let's look at what happens. Where are we going? Okay, uh, Genesis 42. This is another pair, another pairing of Nakah. So this one tells you, this one signals to you in the text that, so, that this is the end of the story now. This is the end game. This is the denouement of the text. So in verse 7, so the brothers have come down to see Joseph to get food and they've been tricked by Joseph. Notice this theme of deception going on. There's all this covering up, this hiding, this, this masquerading. And so like, what Joseph wanted to find out about his father and his youngest brother because he didn't know he had a little brother called Benjamin. And now he wants to try and bait the brothers to get it, to see his family all together. So verse 7, chapter 42. Joseph saw his brothers, notice the word saw, and nakhad them. He recognised them. But he acted as a stranger. Notice the bluff, the deception going on. And he spoke roughly to them. Then he said to them, where have you come from? And they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. So Joseph, nakhad, Avoided somebody's Alexa. <laughs> Alexa, please read the story about Onan. Um, so, verse 8 then. Joseph Nakar, his brothers. Joseph recognised them. This pair of words, Nakar, again. So, Joseph saw his brothers and recognised them. Joseph recognised his brothers. But they did not Nakar him. So, notice this interplay of the deceiver and the deceived. <coughs> And so, and then it says, Joseph remembered the dream. So this becomes key where we understand Judah's plot point. So Joseph had these dreams about them all bowing down to him, right? So hang on to that, because this becomes really interesting. So this is the end, this is the end game of the story. Now we've had this Nakar, that's the third time it's come in pairs, okay? So we're into the end game now. <coughs> You'll be glad to know. Okay, chapter 43 then. So they return to Jacob and they say, look, the only way... We're going to get out of this as if we take our little brother down. Because now they've taken your second son, Simeon. The only way we're going to get out of this is if we come back with Benjamin. And so Judah speaks to Jacob. Judah tries to convince Jacob. Reuben, the firstborn son, is tried, okay? So when they threw Joseph into the pit, Reuben was, uh, when they sold uh, Joseph to the slavers, Reuben was like, oh no, let's just hide him, thinking that he could rescue Joseph later. But then Judah overrides Reuben. So the fourth son overrides the first son and says, no, we'll sell him to the slavers. And now, when they're trying to think of a plan to get back Simeon, Reuben says, look, look, father, Jacob, you, you can take my two sons as surety and we'll sort this out. But Jacob doesn't have anything from Reuben. Okay, notice how Reuben, the first son, doesn't take responsibility himself. He puts it onto his vulnerable children. Okay, but Judah, when he says to Jacob, look, we can sort this out, I have a plan. Look what he says. 
Judas spoke to him and said, saying, The man solemnly warned us, so they still don't know it's Joseph, you, shall see my f- you won't see my face unless your brother is with you, referencing Benjamin. If you send your brother with us, we will go down to buy food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face until your brother is with us. So again, see the language of seeing correctly and all the deception going on. <clears throat> then Judas said to his father, Send the lad with me. Who's taking responsibility? Judah is. Judah's a changed man. So where's Reuben, if you asked him the question, am I my brother's keeper? Not really. You, you can, you know, take my sons. I'm not going to take responsibility. If there's any punishment to be had, you can give it to these vulnerable people in my care. But Judah now is saying, beforehand he'd say, am I my brother's keeper? He'd say, no, of course not. The guy's a loser, I hate him. But now he's saying, look, I've got a plan. We can sort this out. I will take responsibility. Judah said to Israel, his father, send the lad with me and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. So see how he's included in all the vulnerable. This is Judah's way of thinking has changed. I myself will be a surety for him. I will now take the role that I'm supposed to have had. I never did protect my little sibling, Joseph. I never did look after my daughter-in-law. But I will take responsibility now. I will take responsibility for Benjamin, my little brother. I will take responsibility for getting us through this. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. So why is Reuben saying, let my kids bear the blame? Joseph is saying, Judah is saying, let me bear the blame. I will be responsible. I will take this on. Because his heart has been changed. And then look at this speech to Joseph. So if you wonder whether Judah's character arc has ended, read this. Verse 18 of chapter 44. I'm nearly finished, by the way. Then Judah came near to him, so it's Joseph. Oh, my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's hearing. Do not let your anger burn against your servant, for you even like Pharaoh. My Lord has asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a child of his old age, who is young. His brother is dead, and he is alone and left of, our mother's, of his mother's children. Because Judah's the son of Leah, whereas Joseph and Benjamin are the sons of Rachel, her only two children. Then you said to your servants, bring him down to me, that, down, bring him down, that I may set my eyes upon him, eyes. And we said to my Lord, the lad cannot leave his father. If he should leave his father, his father would die. But you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face anymore. So it was that we went up to your servant, my father, and we told him the words of my Lord. And our father said, go back and buy us a little food. We said, we cannot go down if our youngest brother is not with us. Then we will go down, for we may not see the man's face unless the youngest, our youngest brother is with us. Then your servants, my father said to us, there's a lot of servants in this. Um, yada, yada, yada. It will happen when he sees that the lad is not with us, that he will die. So your servants will bring down the grey hair on your servant's father with sorrow to the grave. So notice it's this outpouring of compassion for his own father now. He deceived his father cold-bloodedly about Joseph, and now he has compassion on his father, worried about his father's condition if they take away the little sibling. Uh, For your servant became surety of the lad. I took responsibility. If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame from my father forever. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the lad as a slave to my Lord. Let the lad go up with his brothers, for how shall I go to my father if the lad is not with me, lest perhaps I see the evil that would come upon my father." So this massive outpouring, this is like a, um, a speech that people learn in Shakespeare would learn. It's like a soliloquy or something, you know, like a, a solo piece. 
like a little monologue because his heart has changed. It's like, my father will die if I don't take this lad back. I have pledged myself. So just take me, do whatever you want with me, but make sure that Benjamin goes back to my father because it would crush my dad if Benjamin was taken away from him. This is not the same Judah we met at the start of the story. Yeah, let's sell him. Because recognition has come. Something has dawned in him. And the thing is this, this is where it really goes. Because Judah has a change of heart. Now, when asked the question, am I my brother's keeper? Judah would definitely say, yes, I'm the keeper of all my brothers. Benjamin, Joseph, my father, I will look after them all. Because my heart has been changed. I was once the deceiver that didn't care about anybody. But now I care because I've gone through that transition. I was the deceiver and then I was deceived and that that will happen no more. So just a few more words. Uh, So in chapter 46, look at this language. So who does Jacob send? Then he sent Judah before him to go to Joseph to point out before him the way to Goshen and they came to the land of Goshen. uh, Jacob has 12 sons. 12 sons (laughs) has father Jacob. (laughs) Reuben is his firstborn. Then there's Simeon and Levi. Judah is the fourth. Who is the leader? Who is, who in, in that sort of society, who would be the one to point the way? Reuben. Reuben, the first one. And if he didn't like Reuben, who would he send? Simeon. And if he didn't like Simeon, who would he send? Levi. But he sends Judah, the fourth. The fourth becomes the leader. And look at this now. So remember the, the, the vision that Joseph had? So Joseph, in this story, we always have this, this interpretation story. Joseph's the good the good son of Jacob, right? Joseph's the winner, and however we assess that. Joseph is a successful one. If you want to be like Jesus, you have to be like Joseph and be successful and rule over Egypt or something. We have all those kind of inspiring messages, don't we? But look what happens when Jacob starts giving blessings to the sons. Some of them are awful, by the way. <laughs> so listen to this one. Um, so he's going to give a blessing to your son, Gad. You know, I know, you know, baby names, by the way, Gad. Um, so if you want to pass on a blessing, Gad, a troop shall trample upon him, but he shall triumph at last. In the rankings of blessings, that is pretty rubbish. Or Naphtali, I mean, he lost in the name stakes as well, but Naphtali is a deer let loose. He uses beautiful words. Or uh, Asher, bread from Asher shall be rich and he shall yield royal dainties. <laughs> These are lame blessings. you think Jacob would get better at it, wouldn't you? But listen to what he blesses Judah, uh, Judah with. Judah... You are he whom your brothers shall praise. The prophecy has shifted from Joseph being the one that everybody bows down to, to Judah. Isn't that a curious thing? Your hand should be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. It's moved somehow from Joseph to Judah. I won't read any more, but it's got a pretty cool blessing, this blessings go. And it's funny, and I'd say it's this, that, that Joseph has this character arc where he, he kind of engages with adversity and overcomes. He's loyal to God, he's faithful. But, but Judah has this character arc where the guy's a douche. And he has a change of heart. And he can emphatically say, I am my brother's keeper. Whereas Joseph still at the end toyed with his brothers in their grief and in their sorrow. Twice he imprisons one of them. And he keeps deceiving and he keeps metting out this so cruelty. So somehow Judah, the fourth son, becomes the important one. 
And then we have the tribes of Israel, where Judah is one of the most important tribes. We have the lineage of David from the tribe of Judah, and therefore we have the lineage of Jesus from the tribe of Judah, because the way of perceiving things has been encountered and changed. So by conclusion, for us to perceive, to recognise, to nakhah rightly, often we have to be confronted with how we nakhah wrongly. Most of the Bible, most, almost always in the Bible, it's presented as one dramatic confrontation. But for us, it's likely to be a series of mini-confrontations or assumptions, or, if we have ears to hear, really subtle confrontations. Like what Judah had. He was the deceiver who got deceived. That begins in us, not by self-willed self-improvement, like me with my mirth, but by recognising God is with us. God is it dwelling in us, and lavishly loving us, and gradually opening our eyes to see afresh. Am I my brother's keeper? And the congregation said? Yes. I'll try that again. Am I my brother's keeper? Yes. 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 Amen. And it's this change in recognition that changes the world. Once that recognition dawns, or is continuously dawning, we cannot be silent. We cannot stay still. But we can be empowered by God's spirit of compassion. It starts in us, and it starts with us, and it starts flowing through us. We hear the cry of the oppressed, and we hear God's voice in that, calling to us. Our hearts break for the broken, and we find God's heart is already there, already broken, in Jesus Christ on the cross. We are outraged at the atrocities in our world, and God is there weeping over our nations because they did not know the things that made for peace. We will not grow hard, we will not grow hard-hearted, we will not grow weary, because now we have hearts of flesh that God has given us instead of hearts of stone. (coughs) Even the youths will grow tired and faint, but those that wait upon their Lord will be renewed in strength. Okay, so am I my brother's keeper? Yes. 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 Amen. Thank you. Thanks, sir. Thank you.